The point being, we're, we're all sinkable. And I don't just mean those among us who refuse to believe the word of God, those who refuse to trust and worship Christ, even as genuine, born-again followers of Christ and Christians, we can compromise and sink our marriages. We can compromise and sink our families, our careers, our lives. And so our souls may be secure in Christ, but yet we can still make a mess. God loves us, and his steadfast love will endure forever, but he can be from time to time angry with us, chasten us. In other words, his love for us doesn't exclude the possibility of his anger. It guarantees it. Because he loves us, he can be angry with us. And yet, his anger toward us as his children is always constructive. It's always redemptive. As we'll see, his anger toward his enemies is of a different kind. It will always be destructive. And so the main point you'll see there in your notes, that we can compromise faith and incur the anger of our Heavenly Father, all the while remaining secure in his grace through Jesus Christ. And that's the main point that the life and reign of King Solomon drives home for us. I think we'll meet him in heaven. He's one of the inspired authors of Scripture. And God used him to pen quite a few words of Scripture. His early years as king will be filled with glory and marvelous prayers and trust and sacrifice. But his latter days are going to be filled with compromise. And as a result, the the anger of God So we see the rise of Solomon in 1 Kings 1. If you look at verse 38, so Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing the pipes, rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by the noise. So he ascends to the throne. If you go over to chapter 2, the very last verse, verse 46, so the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. But then you just turn over to the very first verse of chapter 3, and you're going to read a very strange statement, a troubling one. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. So the Lord firmly established the kingdom. And then the very next verse, you see her, see him take the daughter of Pharaoh as a wife. Why? Because she converted to Israel's God? No, because it was a political alliance. So that's the first little seed you see of compromise. Verse 3 of chapter 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And we're meant to see that, again, little seed of compromise. Solomon loved the Lord, only he was not careful in his approach to God. 
even though God had assigned a place, a tabernacle in Jerusalem for sacrifice, for offerings, Solomon's still going out to all these high places and doing it. Political alliances, high places. You just see these little hints that Solomon is still a bit enamored with the world. He's still a bit attracted to the way the world does it. Verse 9, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? Which is a marvelous answer, a wonderful request. In verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And this is going to set up about eight chapters of evidence that God heard the prayer of Solomon. Solomon's wisdom is proved in his administration of justice. If you look at 1 Kings 3, 16 to 28, the organization of his kingdom, 1 Kings 4, 1 to 19, the accumulation of his wealth and wisdom, 1 Kings 4, 20 to 34, in his building of the temple, chapters 5 to 7, and then his prayer at the dedication of the temple is beautiful. And in 1 Kings 8, 57 and 58, we see this wonderful benediction that he's going to offer. Verse 57, the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, his rules, which he commanded our fathers. What a great benediction. May the Lord be with us and for us and not leave us. And may he incline our hearts to him, to trust him, to obey him, to honor him, to follow him. That's his benediction to his prayer at the end of chapter 8. And so Solomon understands what God asks of him. And of his people, their hearts inclined to him, their steps in line with him. And then in chapter 9, we're going to see the Lord is going to appear to Solomon a second time. Chapter 9, verse 3, where the Lord says to him, I've heard your prayer and your plea, which you've made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me. As David, your father, walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you, keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you and your children, and do not keep my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I've given them. And the house that I've consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. Prophetic, almost, in the Lord's response to Solomon's prayer. 
and the glory of his kingdom will last for decades. The wealth and power of his kingdom is going to increase year after year. And in chapter 10, you see that the queen of Sheba, probably present-day Yemen, is going to travel all the way up from the south, quite a journey through difficult terrain in order to witness the fame of Solomon because she's heard about him all the way down in Yemen, about his wisdom, about his wealth, about the glory of this kingdom. And when she heard Solomon and saw his kingdom, verse 5 of chapter 10, there was no more breath in her. In other words, all these promises that God had made to Solomon, he's brought them to pass. And you're seeing Israel function in the way that God intended, that through you, Abraham, I will give land seed blessing to your people, and they will be a blessing to the nations. And here the nations are coming and seeing the splendor, the glory, and in that they're meant to give praise to God. In that, they're meant to go, I want to be a part of this. This very visible, tangible, physical kingdom that's meant to symbolize something invisible, something spiritual. Solomon's wisdom surpassed all just as God said it would. His wealth abounded just as the Lord said it would. Solomon had reached the pinnacle. The queen of Sheba is in awe, and you go, surely he's unsinkable. Surely this kingdom is unsinkable. And then you get to chapter 11, and it all changes with the compromise of Solomon. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for they will surely turn away your heart after their gods. And here he's quoting from Deuteronomy 7.3. As the people were preparing to enter the promised land, this new generation that God had prepared to enter, To give them that land, he charged them, do not intermarry with these surrounding nations. This had nothing to do with ethnicity or skin color, everything to do with marrying inside the faith. Remember, Boaz of Bethlehem is going to marry Ruth, a Moabite. But after she's converted to Yahweh, to the God of Israel. So we see other examples in the scripture like Rahab, the prostitute, who's going to marry a man of Israel, because she's converted to Israel's God. So it wasn't about ethnicity or marrying other skin colors. It was about marrying within the faith in Yahweh. Well, that's not what Solomon's going to do. Just as he married Pharaoh's daughter, he's going to marry a bunch of unconverted women. And he's going to bring in a U-Haul truck all their idols into Israel. And into Jerusalem. Again, verse 2 Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. 
For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. You know what that mountain's called? It's the Mount of Olives. That's where they're going to build that. And so he did for all the for his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. This is where I want us to slow down a little bit and just think from this passage about how compromise works. How does this happen? How do you go from chapter 10 to chapter 11? Well, firstly, compromise begins with affections of the heart. That's where it starts. Not external, but internal. This is part of why it can be sneaky if we're not in tune with going, is going on in the heart. Look at verse 1 again. Solomon loved many foreign women. Verse 2, Solomon clung to these in love. Verse 3, they turned away his heart. That in his heart, Solomon loved what God prohibited. And rather than put that false love to death, he embraced it. Are we aware of that in our heart and lives? That all the things we feel attracted to aren't necessarily good. All the things that our heart longs for. We live in a day and age that if you long for it in the heart, it must be good. Embrace it. Pursue it. Scripture is always trying to say, okay, hold on a minute. You need to understand and look at that affection of your heart through the word of God. And does God say it's good? Does God say it's right? Because we're going to enter into this world with all kinds of attractions. That's precisely what's most wrong with us, is what we're meant to see here. And so Solomon, in his heart, was drawn towards something that God prohibited, loved something that God was against, and rather than put it to death, he embraced it. He nurtured it. He coddled it. He fed it. Though God made him the wisest man on earth, which means he's able to understand how life works in God's world, how life works in God's presence. But somewhere in his soul, he just played with sin. And what I think we're meant to see is that wisdom even doesn't protect you from bad affections. That wisdom is like the banks of a river that takes the water and directs it in different ways. But those affections can become so depraved, so sour, so ungodly, that they overflow the banks. And so even, <clears throat> excuse me, the wisdom of Solomon can't save him from depraved loves. And I think what we're meant to see is we are not smart enough to outwit our bad affections. We're not smart enough to control loves that are wrongly directed. We need nothing else than the grace of God to change us at the heart level. Because that's where compromise starts, affections of the heart. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Who wrote that? Solomon. 
Isn't that something? It's one of the great cases for the inspiration of Scripture is that Solomon would write things like that. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life, and he did not take his own counsel. Compromise progresses a little at a time. That's sort of principle two. Verse three, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, which means 700 wives who were called princesses who had wife status, and then 300 women who lived in his palaces, served his desires, but had a lower status than his wives. But a 1,000 women in all, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite. Remember years ago when we were reading this passage of family, one of the kids asked, how do you get a 1,000 women? I remember saying one at a time. Just one at a time. That's how compromise works. He didn't go zero to a 1,000. He went zero to one, then to two then to three, then to four. And after enough years of compromise, just a degree at a time, so little that you may not feel it, you wake up with a 1,000 wives and 10,000 idols. So one soul-protecting verse of Scripture disregarded at a time. One heart conviction of the Holy Spirit ignored at a time. You ever felt that, that conviction of the Spirit in a moment? And you have a decision, do I ignore this? Do I explain it away? Do I minimize it? Do I throw it under the bed and just keep going that way? Or or do I heed it? Do I humble myself in response to it? One burden of conscience lifted at a time. Conscience is a fragile thing. We don't want to violate it as a habit of life because it will calcify. It will grow less sensitive. It can be warped. And so a conscience should be protected carefully with the word of God. One wise word from a friend brushed at a time, brushed aside at a time, you know that friend who maybe raises some questions in your life or confronts you on some things, and you just dismiss them as rude, insensitive. They don't really know. Or the way they said it maybe wasn't very digestible. And yet sometimes the Lord decides to send that very kind of accountability. We can brush it aside. The gravity of sin lessened one degree at a time. The costliness of sin dismissed a little at a time. One little foray into the world at a time. One tiny bite of transgression at a time. One call to repentance rejected at a time. One more glance at pornography. Just one more drink of alcohol. One more pain pill. One more flirtation with a coworker. One more seductive text. Just one more racy movie. One more nursed bitterness. One more indulgence of grumbling and complaining. One more dishonesty about money. One more refusal to bring sin into the light. Just one more hour, we think, trying to straddle heaven and hell. And we'll survive it. We think, I'll be able to come back. It's amazing how we overestimate our ability to walk away from sin. 
And so just one step at a time. And that was Solomon. Just one foreign wife at a time. And then he wakes up one day and he has a thousand. And a household of idols. And he's become numb to the problem. Blind to the problem. It's like living each day with a pet cobra, right? You know, it's just a little Billy, my pet cobra. And it's growing, you're feeding it, getting bigger. And you just, you're used to it. You don't notice. Now, your friends do. When they come over, like, oh, you got a pet cobra. Yeah, it's Billy. Well, that'll kill you, right? Well, he hasn't yet. We're on good terms. We get along. I feed it. He likes me. Until he doesn't. And until he bites you. And death is swift when the moment comes. You know, one more time running back into the burning house trying to get more and more possessions. I remember reading an article years ago of a man who woke up, his house was on fire at night, he ran out, and he thought, okay, the fire isn't too bad, I think I can run in and get some stuff. So he runs in, gets something, runs out to the yard, puts it down, goes, oh, I think I can go get more, runs back in. Goes back in, in, in and out like six or seven times until he doesn't come back out. And all his neighbors are screaming at him to stop running back into his house to get things until the house comes down on him. We'll do that with sin. Yeah, it's on fire, but I think you can make one more run through it and survive. Proverbs 6, 27, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Who wrote that? It's also Solomon. Thirdly, compromise grows under the influence of the world. Verse 3, and his wives turned away his heart. Verse 4, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Just the daily pressures of Moabite thinking, the daily influence of Ammonite wisdom, the daily desire to please all his Sidonian wives who maybe didn't have as nice an altar as the Hittite wives. And they're like, hey, why do they get that nice altar? What about ours? And you just day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute, you just get shaped by everything that is around you, not just merely culture around, but again, these are wives. They live in his homes. He's spending so much time, and there's just this slow IV drip of poison, of idolatry, that he just gets inoculated to it. The philosophies of the world chipping away at his soul, the music of the world altering his affections, the wisdom of the world, the politics of the world, the glamour of the world, combined with his own desire to be glorious, to impress, to fit in, to not offend, to avoid conflict, and on and on and on, or he's just going to keep compromising. We can do this, right? That's why the fear of man brings a snare. Because if we're trying to keep up with the world around us or impress or not offend or fit in or not have conflict, then we have to adapt the ways of the world. And none of us just goes from zero to a thousand, right, in a minute. Just go from zero to one. 
and two and three till we're at a thousand. Like even as Christians, how often have we said, I never thought it would be me? Or how often have we heard that? I mean, what is that expressing? I never thought this would be me. It expresses, again, the gradual nature of compromise and how we never quite see it coming. How often do we tell ourselves that we can, we can handle the world? Other people may not be able to, but we can handle it. And we don't realize that when we take on the world that way, we're bull riding, we're not little pony riding. Like imagine if you're a little girl, you're at the rodeo and you walk up to the fence and she's like, can I ride the pony, dad? Or mom, and you look and go, sweetie, that's not a pony, that's a bull. You don't want to get on that. And what if she insisted? Would you go, okay, let's give it a shot. Maybe it's tame. Well, that's compromise with the world. It's not a pony. It's a bull. The world is not a butterfly exhibit. It's a jungle. And mistakes in the jungle get you killed. It's not the same in a butterfly exhibit. You can survive a wrong turn. The jungle's different. Compromise eventually becomes outright disaster. Verse 4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. Verse 7, then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, for Molech, the abomination of Ammonites, who, by the way, required child sacrifice as part of worship. And all that on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. When enough snowflakes accumulate on the side of a mountain, all it takes is the sound of a snapping branch to start an avalanche. And then it all comes down. And if you've ever seen video of an avalanche, like 120-foot pine trees will look like toothpicks just snaps them all the way down. And that's what a thousand snowflakes of compromise can become. That when the right moment comes and that branch snaps, that avalanche starts and it takes everything. And that's what happened for Solomon. It became outright disaster. He's buried under this avalanche of his compromises. He was old, it says, tired, worn down by the world and outnumbered a thousand to one. And that's what happens when we overestimate our ability. There's different videos out there of these really strong, like impressive men. And, and, it sh- and, and when they get like tackled by like 30 kids on a football field. And you think, oh, there's no way those kids could tackle that guy. But it's amazing what 30 to 40 kids can do if they all have a hold of your legs. And throat. And eyeballs. And, and he's, no matter how much you resist, they're going to get you down. Well, that's how compromise is. Each one by itself, you may go, oh, I can take that. I can resist that. But you add that up to 500, to 600, it will win. It'll take us down. And so under Solomon, the nation of Israel is no longer distinctive from the world because of all this idolatry. Rather than being a blessing to the nations, it's a mirror of the nations. 
rather being distinct and set apart, the world could look at now at Israel and just see a wealthier version of itself, which is part of the evil of the prosperity gospel. Like that's not how God saves people, it's just showing a wealthier version of themselves. Because we believe in God, our worldliness works. No, we're meant to see, no, this is what compromise does, is you just approve what the world already approves, but you just do it better. Well, what will God feel? What will God do? That's the question, right? You get to that moment in verse 9, and you go, what's he going to do? Well, the anger of God. Verse 9, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen." And so it's Solomon's son, Rehoboam, that is going to feel the full weight of those words. Solomon's children will feel the consequences. That's often how compromise works, right? You'll feel it, but your children will really feel it. The kingdom will split. Only the tribe of Judah is going to remain loyal. And we'll, you would see later the tribe of Benjamin kind of mixed up with them. Because compromise is costly. We're meant to see that. Sin is costly. God is holy. God is jealous for his name. And God is jealous for his people. See what it says? The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. So question, can God be angry with his children? Yes. So don't believe what is commonly taught, even around among Christians now that, that God can't be angry with you. Where his love actually requires it. According to his word, God can certainly be angry with his children. That's one reason this part of the story of Solomon has been recorded for us. We're going to witness the anger of the Lord and something about it that's important for us to see. Because we are his children, we can displease him. He feels something when we ignore his word and walk boldly in sin. And this is not an ugly part of his character. This is a beautiful part of his character. Because the opposite of love isn't anger. It's apathy. It's just not caring. And yet here the Lord does care for Solomon, does care for his people, does care for his name does care about the redemption he's working among his people. And so firstly, God's anger is personal. Verse 9, his heart turned away from the Lord who had appeared to him twice. The Lord was Solomon's Lord and it was personal. 
Solomon was God's beloved child. God personally cared for Solomon. God personally cared for Israel. And so when his people go after other gods, it's personal to him. It matters to him. In the same way that if your spouse took other lovers, you wouldn't be ambivalent. And you would be angry, not because you hate your spouse, but because you love your spouse. Because you know what a covenant is. You know what a covenant faithfulness means. And you are jealous with a holy kind of jealousy for them whom you've taken by covenant. And so his anger here teaches us that he is personal and relational, unlike all these other gods. All these other gods that Solomon is worshiping, they don't care what other gods he worships. Why not? Because they're blocks of wood. They're not alive. But here's the one true living God who does care, who his covenant people worship. God's anger is just. Notice that in verse 10. He did not keep what the Lord commanded. Verse 11, you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you. In other words, Solomon was wrong and the Lord was right. And that's important to say in this day and age. There is such a thing as right and wrong. There can be one person who is right and another person who is wrong. And in this case, Solomon is wrong. And the Lord is right. Solomon was sinful. God is righteous. In other words, God's anger is just. It's deserved. It's not just made up. Thirdly, God's anger is slow. Verse 11, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant, I will surely tear the kingdom from you. Notice what he says, I will not do it in your days, but out of the hand of your son. In other words, Solomon practiced idolatry day after day after day for years. And God taught him and commanded him and warned him and reproved him and waited and waited and waited. And still Solomon continued his practice. Though his anger is going to ignite in this moment, it's going to build slowly because he's slow to anger. God's anger is also connected, notice, to his whole character and work. It's connected to his covenant promises, to his grace, to his faithfulness. Verse 13, however, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem that I've chosen. So though God's angry with Solomon, he's also compassionate. He's also abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I mean, he's even promising in the midst of this judgment, in the midst of this discipline, he's still going to preserve his promises toward the house of David. Again, what God is like our God, who deals so decisively with sin and yet with so much compassion, with so much mercy and grace. How many times in the storyline of the Old Testament do you think God should just go, you know what, enough. I'm just, let's just wipe it all out and start over. How many of us, if we ran a business and this was the dysfunction of the people in that business, would we scrap the business and like start a new business, the whole new set of people? And yet the Lord just continues to strategically, 
carefully work out his promises and keep his covenant faithfulness. And so this anger, it's connected to his whole character and work. You can't just snatch that anger out and understand it without understanding the, the whole of who God is and how he's operating. Also, God's anger is brief. If you look at verse 39, God's going to speak through a prophet and say, I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Isn't that great? Just that his anger towards Solomon's sin will lead to affliction, but not forever. The Lord's going to chasten, but he's not going to destroy. Listen to Psalm 30, the Psalm of David. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for a night, but joy comes with the morning. That even in this low, terrible estate that Solomon is in, that the nation is in, God still has a plan as a, for a way out. That his anger, slow to build, just, righteous, personal, is but for a moment in the grand scheme of things. Joy will come in the morning. Well, what's that a reference to? Well, he's got a plan for how to deal with sin and idolatry which is that point F, God's anger is ultimately poured out upon Jesus Christ for the salvation of his people. How can his anger be brief? How can he be angry just for a moment? Does he just get over it? For how many of us is that how we deal with anger? Yeah, I'm not angry anymore, not because I forgave anybody, not because of graciousness, just time lapsed. I don't feel it anymore. That's why some people say, you know, forgive and forget, where actually the more important thing we need to do is forgive before you forget. Because if you don't, it just cakes in. And so the Lord, he doesn't just get over it. His grace is the reason. His favor is the reason. God's anger toward his children is momentary because he's ultimately going to pour out that anger and that wrath upon his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And so all anger will go somewhere in either in the justice of hell or the justice of the cross. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, just in case we thought we're not like Solomon. No, all of us have sinned like that, idolatry like that, compromise like that, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption, that is, so justification by, or justified by grace, meaning declared righteous before God by God, by his grace as a gift, through the redemption, the purchase from slavery to sin and death that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, as a satisfaction for wrath, as a satisfaction for his anger towards sin, to be received by faith. By turning from sin and trusting in Christ. This was to show God's righteousness, his justice, his holy justice. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So even now with Solomon, he's passing over rather than just destroying him to hell. 
And it was to show his righteousness at the present time, meaning he's passing over until we can get to Jesus, to the cross, to the resurrection, so that he might be just, meaning he's still righteous, still just in his execution of what is just. All sin will be accounted for. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Because that's the problem, right? How can God be just and forgive sinners? That's the dilemma of the whole Bible. How does God draw sinners into fellowship and reconciliation with himself and live forever with them without compromising his own character? Because if he justifies these sinners, that's not just. Well, unless he provides an offering, a propitiation, a perfect, unblemished sacrifice on which he's going to pour his wrath towards sin and sinners. So that all who have faith in him, who are united to him, who are covered in his righteousness, can be justified without God, with God still being just. So even with Solomon, that's where God sees this going. The anger of God toward his children is distinct from his anger toward his enemies. That's really important to see. God expresses anger very differently toward his children in the Bible compared to toward his enemies. To his children, God says, return, Jeremiah 3.12, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I'm merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. That's the invitation to those who are going to put faith in Christ. But to his enemies who reject faith in Jesus, he's going to say in Ezekiel 8, therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. That's a very different response. God's children cry out in Psalm 85, Lord, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Well, how can he do that for us? because he put it all on his son. And yet his enemies in Revelation 6 are going to say something different. It says they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That's what his enemies are going to say. His children are going to praise God for the cross, for forgiveness, for grace and mercy, for reconciliation that came through his shed blood, for being given hearts to believe and to trust, for being filled with the spirit who unites us to Jesus, who imputes righteousness to us. His enemies are going to call for mountains to fall on them because of the phrase, the wrath of the lamb. What a phrase. Who thinks of a lamb's wrath? And yet that sums up so much of the story of the gospel. The wrath of God poured out on a lamb in our place so that we can be forgiven. And he's raised and reigning. And when he comes back, the wrath of that lamb will be poured out on his enemies. Those are two very different experiences of God's anger. And so... Both groups are standing before God as sinners. Both groups know the anger of God, yet one group takes shelter in the cross of Christ. 
And what they come to know is forgiveness, mercy, grace, compassion. As they look at the one who took God's anger in their place. And that turns you from worshiping idols to worshiping the lamb. To worshiping the one who redeemed you. But there's a whole other group that runs away, that won't draw near in faith, that simply persists in unbelief, and they're going to endure the full weight of God's anger forever. And so the question to ask ourselves first is, to which group do you belong? Are you the one by faith taking shelter in the cross and having this lamb absorb God's wrath for you? Or are you one standing going, you know what? No, I think I'll handle it. I think I'll speak for myself. I think I'll make an argument for myself. I'll think I'll, I'll just hold on to all my idols, wait till that last day, and negotiate. And what the gospel warns is, yeah, don't do that. Don't wait till then. Because that only makes sense until you see him. And then once you see him, you cry out, Mountains fall on us. Who's going to hide me from this wrath? So now is the time to take shelter, not in a mountain, but in a cross. Yeah, the Queen of Sheba, as we already talked about, journeyed from a distant country to see the glory of Solomon. She heard him and drew near. She saw and believed the report. And Jesus, many, many years later, a thousand years later, in Luke 11, it's actually going to point back to her as a model, as an example of how to come to him. Jesus says, the queen of the south, Luke 11:31, will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. So even Solomon was a foreshadowing. Even Solomon was a type. And what the Queen of Sheba did in drawing near to behold his glory, to see him, to hear him, to sit under his wisdom, to receive it, and to respond with blessing. Jesus is saying, that's a model of how you ought to come to me. Except more so because someone far greater than Solomon's here. God in the flesh. And so are you... A stranger to God, just walking in your sin? Well, then Scripture take counsel from the Queen of Sheba. You don't want her to rise up on the last day as a judgment on you. You want her to rise up on the last day as a sister in Christ. But are you a child of God walking in compromise? Well, I think we're meant to see from the, you know, consider the displeasure of your Heavenly Father. Remember how much He's given us in Christ. Because he's going to give us a greater kingdom than Solomon. That's sort of amazing, right? Not only is a greater king here than Solomon, a greater kingdom is coming than Solomon. And he's going to share that with us. Our king is more glorious than Solomon. We have Christ. We have forgiveness. We have eternal life. And what that should motivate is just that we rise every morning and run to his word. Run to his promises. Run in conviction to the cross, seeking forgiveness. Surround ourselves with people who are going to counsel us with these words. Learn to take it to heart. So that we would say, as David said in Psalm 30, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. Give thanks to his holy name. 
For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So we covered a lot of ground, but we're going to take the next 10 minutes here, about 12 minutes, and just, again, as we usually do, divide up into groups of four or five, and there's going to be some points of discussion there in your notes. And just if it's taking a couple of those or one of those, depending on how the conversation goes, just, yeah, talk about it. Share, share uh, with one another in response to those questions, and then at the end of that 12 minutes, I'll come back up and pray to close us.